0: Let's pray together. (laughs) Father, we pray now that by your spirit, through your word, in the name of Jesus, you would cause us to understand the scriptures and experience the marvel, the wonder, of the fact that you reckon people righteous by faith apart from works. Lord, would you make us feel how astonishing and magnificent this is? And would you convince convince us that it is exactly what the Bible teaches from start to finish? And Lord, would you thereby free us from the sense that we need to justify ourselves, that we need to establish our own righteousness, the feeling that we need to somehow earn your approval. Lord, would you cause the gospel to be clear in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives? And Lord, would you cause it to overflow and enable us to love one another as you have loved us? We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. There were staten- statements in the Old Testament that had produced confusion. And this confusion had led to a misunderstanding of the way that God had set up the world. One of the statements, you don't have to turn there. Maybe you want to write down the reference and look at it later. One of the statements is in Jeremiah 17. In this passage, Jeremiah says in verse 24, If you listen to me, declares the Lord, and bring in no burden by the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work on it, then there shall enter by the gates of this city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David. It sounds like if they keep the law, God will bless them with the future king from David's line. And some Jews had concluded, this is exactly what the Old Testament teaches. If we'll do what the law requires, it will be reckoned to us for righteousness. In fact, this is volume two of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, The Dead Sea Scrolls were found at a place called Qumran. And what had happened, probably, around 200 BC, um, a group of Jews had decided that the Jerusalem establishment was so profoundly corrupt... That they just had to give up on those people. There was no no making those people get in line with the teaching of the scriptures. The only thing to do was separate from them and go out to the shores of the Dead Sea and found an alternative community in which righteousness could be established. And if they could do what was righteous before God, then God would send the future king from David's line. And, And listen to what they say here. This is... This is from a document called 4QMMT, maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't heard of it, I don't know. (laughs) Um, The the, the MMT, the the way they number these things, there were 11 caves at Qumran, and so you'll have 1Q, 2Q, 3Q, 4Q, according to which cave these documents were found in, and this particular document, the, the, the abbreviation MMT, stands for a Hebrew phrase. Miksa Maase Hatorah, which means some works of the law, some deeds required by the law. And listen to what they say in this document. This, I'm, I'm reading it to you here. I'm not making this up. It shall be reckoned to you for righteousness when you do what is upright and good before him. The first part of that, reckoned to you for righteousness, it's a direct quotation of Genesis 15:6, which was read earlier in the service. But you know that verse. That verse doesn't say Abraham did what was upright and good and God reckoned it to him for righteousness. That's not what that verse says. That verse says Abraham believed and the Lord reckoned it to him for righteousness. So the reckoning righteous, according to Genesis 15, is in response to faith, not in response to deeds. But these guys, and Paul's contemporaries, with whom he's interacting, whom he's trying to straighten out, they've got it confused, that this relationship between being reckoned righteous and either your works or your faith. Which is it that establishes you as righteous? What you do or what you believe? That's the the question here as we approach Romans chapter four. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I would invite you to open to Romans chapter four. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, there's a pew Bible probably nearby and you can open it to Romans four. If you don't have a a nice copy of the scriptures in your possession, you can take that home with you. We'd love for you to make that your your copy. As as we approach to, as we come to Romans four, let me just remind you what we've seen thus far in in the book of Romans. In, In the first 15 chapters, Paul introduces to the Romans what it is that he teaches. And I would draw your attention to verses 2 and 3, how he's talking about this gospel in verse 1, which is concerning, verse 3, his son who was descended from David. So Paul is talking about what Jeremiah was talking about. He was talking about the hope of his kinsman, which was the future king from David's line. And Paul's message is he has come in accordance with the Scriptures. And he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And then Paul explains how it is that he wants to, he's eager and he's unashamed and he's obligated to preach the gospel to these believers in Rome. In verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, he lays out the theme of the letter, which is that this message, this gospel, is the power of God for salvation. When people hear this message... The Spirit of God activates their hearts, enables them to believe. The gospel, the good news, the message is the power of God for salvation. And then he talks about how in verse 17, in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And what happens when the righteousness of God is revealed is that unrighteousness also gets revealed. Because there's a contrast between the righteousness of God, this self-giving, loving generous, other-centered God in the way that we are. I heard a, I heard a pastor use this, this illustration this week. He said, it's like we have this computer within us that's always on. And, and, and what's programmed into that computer, the, the, what's, what's driving everything that we do, our every response, our every insta- instinct, our every impulse is this question, what's in it for me? What's in it for for me. We don't have to be taught to ask that question. We don't have to be somehow guided into asking that question. We're just we're just wired because of sin, because of our sinful nature, we're constantly looking for our own personal advantage. And if you're not that way, you're not very much like me or the rest of us. That's how we are. We are sinfully inclined. So when the righteousness of God, generosity other-centeredness, love. When all this goodness gets revealed, our badness gets revealed. And look at what what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse um, 20. Verse 20, uh, where is it? It's verse 18 that I want, sorry. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Those two terms are going to come up ...in the passage that we're dealing with this morning. Ungodly and unrighteous in 118. Well, Paul explains in 118 through 320... ...how everyone is under sin. Both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. And look at his conclusion in Romans chapter 3 verse 20. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. No human being is going to be justified by works. So, I would not be surprised... In fact, I am confident, I am, ab, I am certain, as certain as I can be, that there are people sitting in this room right now who expect to stand before God and be accepted by Him because they're good people. I don't doubt for a second that you're sitting here thinking, yeah, that's how it works. 4QMMT, it will be reckoned to us for righteousness when we do what is upright. That's the way that we think it works. And and the message of the scripture is, no, that's not the way it works. Christianity is not for good people. Christianity is for bad people. And guess what? We're all bad people. Romans 3.20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And then uh, last week, we looked at Romans 3.21-31, and we talked about how Paul is dealing with two problems here. Problem number one, how do unrighteous people get accepted before God. And, and look at what he says in verse 24. He says that we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that, so that's one question. How do unrighteous people get justified, get, get made righteous by God's grace as a gift? And Paul also says in this passage through faith. And then the other question is, how does God establish his justice? If he makes unrighteous people into righteous people, can he do this in a way that's righteous? And the answer is yes. And what Paul explains in Romans 3.25 and 26 is that this is why Jesus was crucified, to establish the righteousness of God. And then in 3.27, Paul begins to address boasting. And he asks in 3.27, then what becomes of our boasting? And the answer is it's excluded because... It goes like, this is the way we think it works. I do a certain amount of work. I earn a certain wage. So if I'm going to earn the wage of eternal life, I must have done really good things. I must be a really good person. I must have made the really right choice. And Paul is saying, no, that's not the way it works at all. You're boasting about what you've done or the right choice you made. That's all excluded because of the way that this gospel works. And and now what Paul is going to do in Romans chapter 4 is prove this from the example of Abraham. So he's still advancing the same message. And he's going to prove that boasting is excluded from Abraham. And he's going to prove that righteousness comes by faith apart from works of the law. And he's going to prove it from the life of Abraham. And he's going to support that proof from the life of David. And then he's going to conclude by applying this to those who are uncircumcised. So let's look together at Romans chapter four, where Paul asks. Now, I think what's going on here is he's laying all this out and he knows that this letter is gonna be read in a church full of, 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 of Christians, some of whom are Jews, some of whom are Gentiles. And he knows, I mean, over in Romans 16, He names all these people that he knows in the church in Rome. He's in contact with... He hasn't even been there yet, and he knows all these members of that church. So probably he's gotten reports from those people about what's going on in Rome. Paul, we really need your message. Because the the Jewish people in our congregation, some of them, they really think that they're special. They really think that they're better off. They really think that, that they control the power structures. They really think that we Gentiles need to get circumcised. And then probably he's hearing from Jewish people who are saying, Paul, you know, these Gentiles, they really need to get their lives straightened out. They really need to come into line. I'm I'm really unsatisfied with the way that they're living. And and Paul is is getting all this information, and he's addressing these things as he explains the gospel. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? So he's trying to prove... That justification is by faith alone, apart from works of the law, as a gift of God's grace. And here's the proof for his, the Jewish members of his audience. Abraham, the man of faith. What did, what did he get? What did he find? Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. He has a ground for boasting. If Abraham established his righteousness before God on the basis of what he did, then yes, he can can boast. But look at what Paul says next, but not before God. What Paul is saying is, if you think anybody can boast before God, you have not yet understood the holiness of the living God. I, I heard a story this week about John Stott, who was... A pastor in England. He pastored also's Church in London for many, many years, a long, long time, and he was faithful. He was a good man. He was a godly man. He walked with the Lord. He, he influenced hordes and hordes of gospel ministers. He was, he was a great pastor, and at one point, uh, somebody came up to him. He wrote a bunch of books, and somebody came up, came up to John Stott, and he said, I just want you to know What a blessing it is to learn from the writing ministry of a righteous man. And John Stott looked at him and he said, If you could see my heart as God sees my heart, you would sooner spit in my face than call me righteous. That's an understanding of the gospel. That's that's the understanding of a man who knows I have no boast before God. There is nothing for us to point to before God and say, Look at my righteousness. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Now here, what, what I think Paul is doing, it's almost like he's challenging the, the, the biblical understanding of his Jewish contemporaries. And you know, there are statements in the Old Testament that could be misunderstood. I'm going to read you one of them. This is, this is Genesis 26, verse 5. I'll start in verse 4. Genesis 26, 4 and 5. Moses writes, I will uh, the Lord saying to Abraham, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And I just want to observe here that this is simply a reiteration of what God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12:1 through 3. Land, seed, blessing. Seed, offspring, I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And give to your offspring all these lands, that's land. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. There it is, land, seed, blessing. And then look at verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. In other words, why did God bless Abraham? Well, Genesis 26:5 makes it sound like because Abraham kept the law. Doesn't it sound like that? And, and what Paul now is straightening out is a misunderstanding of the broader context of that passage. Because in the broader context, it is clear that when God revealed himself to Abraham back in Genesis 11 and 12, and when he first stated that blessing in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, at that point, Abraham's an idolater. Abraham's a pagan. Abraham's not keeping God's law. Abraham is worshiping other gods. Joshua 24:2 says plainly. When Abraham and Nahor and Terah lived beyond the river, they served other gods. So Abraham is a pagan idolater. And the living God reveals himself to him and announces, I'm going to give you land, seed, and blessing, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And then here's the text that that Paul is about to quote, Genesis 15, 6. We read this earlier in the service. And, And on that occasion, what's happening... I hope this is comforting to you. If you're, if you're here and you're struggling, if you're here and you're, you're discouraged and you feel, like, you feel like you lack the faith you need, you feel like um, maybe, maybe Christianity works for other people because they believe. Now, notice this false thinking here. Christianity works for other people because they have stronger faith than I have. But Christianity do, doesn't do for me what I need to have it do because my faith isn't strong enough. You notice where the the focus is? On us, right? On our faith. Look at what is happening with Abraham in Genesis 15. The Lord has said to Abraham, we read this passage earlier in the scripture, so I'm not going to, earlier in the service, so I'm not going to reread the passage. But the Lord has promised Abraham, in spite of the fact that Abraham, his wife is barren, and he's so old, he's as good as dead. And the Lord says to him, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the heavens. And several years go by, and Abraham's like, "Um, Lord, you remember that promise you made about descendants? Well, I'm getting really old here, and this guy who wasn't born to me, he's going to inherit everything that I own. And the Lord's response is, this man shall not be your heir. He says, go outside and look at the stars and number them if you are able to. And then he says, so, this way, like the stars of heaven, so shall your offspring be. And then the next words, Genesis 15, 6, he believed the Lord. Now, let me just observe here that it was unrighteous of Abraham to doubt God's promise. Right? I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven. It is unrighteous on Abraham's part to doubt the promise. I would also observe, Genesis 12, Abraham takes Sarah down into Egypt and he lies about her. And, he, and he, his lie is so bad that it winds up with Sarah essentially being sex trafficked. She winds up in Pharaoh's harem. Hare, Pharaoh sees a beautiful woman and he seizes her and takes her into his harem, makes her into a sex slave, essentially. And then the Lord, So Abraham was wicked on that occasion. And then prior to that, Abraham's a pagan idolater. Okay? So Abraham is not righteous before God. I wonder if there's anybody here that can identify with Abraham today. You've worshipped other gods. You've committed idolatry. You've sought what can only be given to you by the living God from these these broken cisterns, these worthless sources that can do nothing for you. And then you've made choices and you've done things and you've said words that have hurt people close to you. And you've doubted the living God. I can identify with Abraham. Look at verse 6. He believed the Lord... And he counted it, I think the it refers back to the belief, faith, he counted it to him as righteousness. Now let's just be very clear that faith and righteousness are are not the same thing, right? Righteousness is doing what the law requires. Believing is you come to a place where you hear this promise and, I mean, think about this in Abraham's life. He's He's probably not a happy pagan. Most pagans aren't. Most people aren't. But we could call him a happy pagan living over there in Ur. And he thinks he knows how the world works. And then this God appears to him. And this God says to him, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Which means you leave the land that you know, the culture where you know the customs. You leave the group of people, the kindred, the wider kinship group that's going to protect you and assist you and help you. And you leave your father's house. You leave everything that you look to for safety and security. And I'm not even going to tell you where to go. And Abraham's response is, yes, sir. Where, when do I start? I'm, I'm out. Now, what's going on there is not massive faith on Abraham's part. What's going on there is this God is so compelling that he has experienced. This God is so compelling that Abraham has experienced that Abraham's response is, there is no one who can do more for me than him. There is no one who could punish me more than him. And so whatever he says, I'm doing it. Whatever he says, I'm doing it. Faith is not strengthened by us looking within ourselves. Faith is strengthened by us hearing the promises and experiencing the living God. You you don't need more faith. You need more of God is what you need. You need to experience him more. You need his word to crowd out all the other messages that we're hearing. Back to Romans chapter 4. Abraham has nothing to boast about before God, verse 2, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God... And it was counted to him as righteousness. I wonder what the fallout was between Abraham and Sarah after that episode in Egypt. I'm confident that there were lingering difficulties in their marriage. I suspect that the next time he came up with a plan, hey Sarah, when we go into this new place, and and maybe all she did was get a certain look in her eye. I know how the last plan of yours worked out. It worked out by me being seized by Pharaoh's guards and put into his harem. Maybe she didn't articulate, maybe she just maybe her face her head just moved in a certain way and he knew she doesn't trust me. And she shouldn't. And he knew that too. But Genesis 15:6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him As righteousness before God. We who are Christians, we are we are we are not righteous people. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you don't believe what we believe, we don't think we're righteous. We think we're like Abraham. We're sinners. We're sinners, but because of God's grace, by faith, He counts us righteous. And then look at what. Paul goes on to say, verse 4, he's he's going to explain this. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And we all know how this works. And this is how how the Jews of Paul's day, this is how other religions, this is how many of us, maybe all of us, unless we learn the gospel, this is how we think it works with God. You do a certain amount of work, you get a certain amount of pay. But look at the way Paul contrasts this in verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteous. So you've got, you got two different kinds of people. you got workers who get paid. And then you got believers who get counted as righteous. And in the first example, workers earn their pay. But notice the contrast. To the one who works, his wages are counted as what is due to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That's where those two words from Romans 1, 118 come up. Remember, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness. The word justifies is just another form of the word righteousness. He makes them righteous. He justifies the ungodly. one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is counted as righteousness and then it's like it's like paul is anticipating an objection okay paul i see genesis 15 6 and i grant that but what if that's an example or or, i'm sorry not an example what if that's an exception to the rule what if the general rule is you got to work to earn your righteous standing and paul says let me back up what I'm saying about Abraham with David, verse six. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts, to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Verse seven: Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Do you know the relief of this? Do you know the gospel? Do you know the wonder? of realizing all my debts are paid. Maybe you're familiar with this parable over in Matthew 17. Jesus tells this parable of the unforgiving servant. It's a great parable. He says, starting in verse 23, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read the part that's relevant here. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him, who owed him 10,000 talents and since he could not pay his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. When I was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary my first semester I realized that I was not going to have the necessary funds to cover my expenses and I I got up my calculator I thought that I was a foolish kid. And, and I was just following the Lord, trying to walk in faith. And I get to Dallas, and I think, if I get a job working at a church, I'll be able to pay my bills. Well, I hadn't done the calculations on what the bills were and how much my income was going to be. So then I get the calculator out, and I start putting in the numbers, and I realize I'm going to be significantly short here. <laughs> and then I start thinking, well, maybe I could sell my guitar. Well, that's not going to make up the difference. Maybe I could sell my car. Well, not only is that not going to make up the difference, either... I'm going to have no way to get around and get to my job, which I need to continue to receive the income. I mean, that's not going to be a solution. What am I going to do? I mean, can you put yourself in in the place of this servant? Can you contemplate the recognition that if all your debts are called due, this is the reality about every human being who's a sinner, which is all of us. If your debts are called, you're going to hell forever. That's what's happening. Verse 26 of Matthew 18. So the servant fell on his face, fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything, which he can't do. It's not going to happen. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That's what happens for people who believe. All your debts are canceled, it's paid by Christ on the cross. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom the Lord counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That story in seminary. I went to church, made known the prayer request, and and the Lord gave me a free place to live, which canceled a whole bunch of my debt. And then it was like the Lord just opened up windows of heaven and money started raining down in my life. And all my, all my needs were paid for. I never went into debt. Did you notice in our call to worship this morning when we did Psalm 32, which is the passage that, that um, Paul is quoting here, that, that you get forgiveness in 32, 1 and 2, the, the passage that Paul quotes. But then thirty-two eleven, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. I think Paul has a thorough understanding of the whole of Psalm 32 and I think he knows that that Psalm is addressed to righteous people who've experienced forgiveness because their sins are not counted to them. And now, does this only count for the circumcised or is it also to the circumcised? Look at verse 9. Paul says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And what Paul's going to do is he's going to walk back through the Old Testament. And he's, he's going to teach the, the flow of the Old Testament narrative here. Verse 9, For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. He's just restated Genesis fifteen six, Verse 10, How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? So the chapter in which Abraham got circumcised was Genesis 17. So... It was not after he was circumcised that he was counted righteous, but before he was circumcised. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. This speaks into the controversies in the church in Rome, the controversies between the people who are circumcised and the people who are uncircumcised. And Paul's point is, whatever the difference is between you, if you have faith, you have been reckoned righteous. If you believe the gospel, you have been reckoned righteous. And that's a bigger and more important point than all of the little things that might separate or cause division among us. What background we come from what certain philosophies we might embrace about how best to help people, or, I don't know, take your pick of the the things that divide people in churches. If you believe that people are justified by faith as a gift of God's grace, then we're dealing with people who are made righteous before God. Paul continues here in verse 11, was circumcised. So what Paul is doing there really is just fleshing out Genesis twelve three, In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Not just the Jewish people who get circumcised. And you notice how Paul has said it's not just Jewish people who are circumcised, it's Jewish people who are circumcised and have Abraham's faith. This should provoke in us gratitude to God love for God and love for one another, it should also provoke in us a recognition that that there is nothing in the world more expensive than our sin, both to us and to God. Charles Spurgeon said, the more God loves you and the more you love God, the more expensive you will find it to sin. He said an ordinary sinner sins cheaply. The child of God sins very cheaply dearly our sin our sin cost the life of the son of God and our sin it's it's like it what we're doing when we sin is we're just stepping on the gas pedal if I can sort of mix my metaphors here that computer within us saying what's in it for me maybe I should say we're amping up the power to it I don't know I, we're, we're, if, if that's an engine, if that's a car within us, we're, we're, we're gassing it. We're saying, I want to be a more selfish person when we go on sinning. Which makes it harder and harder to overcome sin with love. Makes, it's, it's expensive to sin. So, we can also see here, can't we, again, that the gospel should provoke in us humility, and that it should provoke in us Freedom, freedom from this concern to justify ourselves. If we're righteous before God, it really doesn't matter what people think of us. Because that debt, hell, has been paid. The charges that were proved against us, they've been overturned. The verdict, the guilty verdict... The gavel had come down. The verdict was guilty. The sentence had been determined. But God reckons those who believe to be righteous. And as a result of this, we who are, most of us in this room are Gentiles according to the flesh. Paul describes us, and it's it's a true description. We were without God and without hope in the world. We were aliens to the covenant. Strangers to God's promises. And by the blood of Christ, we've been brought near into the very family of God. Let's pray together. Father, we're not asking for an attitude adjustment. We're asking for an ongoing renewal of our minds we're asking for a transformation that changes us at the heart level. And Lord, we're praying that you would do it by means of the gospel. Lord, would you convince us of the truth of Genesis fifteen six and Romans 4, 1 to 12? Convince us that when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that, God, that you raised him from the dead, Not only are we saved, but our transgressions are not reckoned or counted against us. And we are are considered before you as having the very righteousness of Christ himself. Because you made him who knew no sin to be sin. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And so, Lord, with Paul, we say that we don't have a righteousness of our own that comes from works of the law, but that which is by faith in Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would cause this righteousness by faith, this status that you've granted to us. We pray that it would free us from the need to boast in the eyes of our contemporaries, free us from the need to Maintain legalistic, false appearances. Lord, make us those who can freely confess our sin, freely confess our need, freely ask one another for prayer and help. Lord, make us those who understand the gospel and live it out. And we pray that it would be transforming. We pray that people would know that we're followers of Jesus by the way that we love one another. We ask it in his name. Amen.